Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, we're remembering the visit of JFK to Ireland in June 1963, and we'll be debating its significance at the time and its legacy. Last week, we commemorated the Irish Civil War, which began 100 years ago, and we spoke to Dermot Ferreter and other historians about its causes, course and consequences. And if you want to listen back to this or to any of our older shows, just go to our website, newstalk.com or wherever you download your podcasts. In tonight's show, we'll be getting different perspectives on the first visit of a sitting American president to Ireland when John F. Kennedy came here in June 1963. We'll be talking to someone from EPIC, the Irish Immigration Museum in Dublin, about the visit, the connections between Ireland and the United States and what it meant for the Irish diaspora. And we'll end the show hearing from one of our very own listeners, someone who's been with us from the very beginning and someone who went to Dublin Airport all those years ago to see JFK arrive. But first, we begin tonight's show with Professor Frederick Logeval, who is the Lawrence D. Belfer Professor of International Affairs at the John F. Kennedy School of Government at Harvard and Professor of History at Harvard University. A Pulitzer Prize winning historian, he's the author of the brilliant book JFK, Coming of Age in the American Century, 1917 to 1956, part one of a planned two-part series. Frederick, you're very welcome to the show. Oh, it's wonderful to be on with you. Could you maybe begin by giving us the context to the visit? Because in Ireland, we tend to focus on the four days he came here. But of course, this was part of a much larger European visit. He went to West Germany and visited the Berlin Wall. After this, he went to Britain and then he went to Italy. So how important was the Irish visit and maybe where does it fit into that European tour? I think it was an important part of the visit. I think, as you know, he had wanted to, to come to Ireland during his term, and they had had some difficulty figuring out exactly when to do it. But I think he felt strongly that this needed to be part of the trip. Uh, as you say, he also visited other places. I think it's it's an interesting time in his life. And of course, he doesn't know that he's going to be assassinated in um, in five months. But he had had successes in the Cold War. Uh, he had managed to defuse with Khrushchev the Cuban Missile Crisis. I think Kennedy was feeling in that summer of 65 um, that um, you know good times were ahead, if I can put it that way. And so I think it was in a sense a kind of triumphal tour. But I think that the Irish part of this, the, the, the few days that he spent in Ireland, um, mattered a lot to him and it was something he insisted on including. And do you think there was a political element to it as well? Did he want to uh, keep Irish America on side at home and, and, and especially when you had another election coming up the year later? Uh, I think no question. I mean, I think he felt and his advisors felt, uh, including the so-called Irish mafia of Kenny O'Donnell, Dave Powers and uh, Larry O'Brien, I think they felt very confident that they had that vote sewn up anyway. In other words, I'm not sure they thought that the visit was was critical in in electoral terms. Nevertheless, no question, hey, this is an opportunity where we can really show a very large number of Irish American voters that we were there, that we took this seriously, and we had a, a glorious a, a glorious few days. No question. What image did Kennedy have of Ireland? And was it some idealised version of, of, of an Ireland that didn't exist? Because he was quite realistic when it came to uh, United States relations with Britain as well. And he wasn't going to, to damage them just to, to score some points in Ireland. No, I think you're right. I think he was a realist. Um, I think he um, I think had a good grasp. He, he's a, he was a man in all areas 
who tended to do his homework. And so one of the interesting things, and you can find this in the Kennedy Library, which is just down the street from where I'm sitting uh, today, you can find the background materials that Kennedy was provided prior to the trip, talking about the state of Irish politics, contemporary Irish history, relations between Ireland and, and, and London. Um, and I think he probably knew a lot of that already. He was a student of, 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 of history and of international affairs. One of the themes in my first volume is that he had this, Kennedy had this international sensibility, which I think is key to understanding him as a politician. Nevertheless, I think he also did his homework before the trip. I think he had a, a realistic, as you say, sense of um, the, the particulars, at least many of them, of Irish politics, um, and you know, made the trip on that basis, no question. How was the trip viewed by the media back home? Well, my my sense is, you know, this is a part of Volume Two that I'm still actually be I'm working on Volume Two right now, and the pandemic has has slowed me down. My sense is that the American press, because I want to look into this as I'm writing that part of the book that the American press followed every step of his journey. Berlin was a huge success. I mean, the, the crowds in, in, in Germany in general were just enormous, um, and he got a lot of coverage, but also the other parts of the trip. Probably the, the least successful part of the trip was Italy because the turnout among Italians, though it was uh, robust, it wasn't anything like we, he saw on the other parts of the trip. I think Ireland, um, because of his heritage, all eight grandparents having great 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 grandparents having been born in Ireland, come over during the potato famine. This was played up in the American press, and the fact that he was going back now, including to the part of Ireland where he where his ancestors came from, uh, I think it was catnip for for reporters. So it got a lot of attention. This was, of course, the high point of the Cold War and JFK was coming from the Berlin Wall, which is maybe the great symbol of that Cold War. I wonder what JFK thought about Irish neutrality, because when you look at the speech he made uh, in the Dáil, there do seem to be criticisms of Irish foreign policy, Irish neutrality, and maybe they're, they're couched in idealistic language about Ireland playing a greater part on the world stage. But it definitely seems to be kind of trying to nudge Ireland into getting involved in these affairs? I think it's a very astute uh, reading on your part. I do think that he felt, and there's some evidence of this in the documents prior to the trip, and indeed in 61 and 62, so in his first years in office, he felt the need, as did you know, the Secretary of State, Dean Rusk, I think his Secretary of Defense, Robert McNamara, others felt we do need to nudge, we should try to nudge um, the Irish um, because... You know, this is a, a, a struggle we're engaged in against Soviet-led communism. Uh, neutrality is problematic. Um, I'm originally from Sweden, and the Swedes felt the same kind of uh, pressure um, from Americans, so under Kennedy, but also later on. So, yeah, I think he he had misgivings about this. Again, he was a realist. He understood that, that uh, one can have different conceptions of national interest, and he recognized the need for the Irish leadership to make their own decisions on these things. But it wasn't quite what he hoped um, Ireland, the stance that he hoped Ireland would take in the Cold War. And how do you f- how do you view that speech then that he did make in our in our parliament building? And, uh, 
you know there's some beautiful lines of poetry of of poetry in it there is there's the there is it's it's captures the great figures of Irish America it references the Irish involvement in the in the American Civil War how important was it as a speech I think it was I think it was a speech well I can say this it was a speech about which he again there's evidence of this that I've seen in the archives I was just in the Kennedy Library yesterday and in anticipation of this interview I thought I want to look a little bit at how the speech was, um, what he thought of it, and it's clear that he felt, and he'd had Ted Sorensen, his his supremely gifted speechwriter, work with him on the speech. Although Kennedy himself, I think I saw evidence, contributed to some of the language. So I can tell you that he felt very good about the speech that he delivered. Some of it, I think, I could see was ad libbed. This is something Kennedy often did. He would depart from the written script for a few sentences here, maybe a whole paragraph there. He became very good at doing that. And and I sense that he added nothing too consequential, um, but he added some language on his own right there on the spot, which I think is interesting. But, you know, I would almost love to turn the question back to you and say, how was the speech received among his Irish audience? That would be really interesting to know. Well, I think it's always been seen as one of those great speeches and it's often quoted, it's often played here. I think someone even put it to music and and I think maybe some of the nuances and subtleties were missed. So those kind of uh, criticisms of foreign policy or the nudging, I don't think that's yeah. really been picked up on. It's been seen as a great uh, triumph. It's been seen as a great tribute to Ireland and to Irish, the Irish connections uh, and maybe yeah. some of the, the nuances were maybe a little maybe too nuanced. Oh, interesting. Well, I mean, you know, the other thing I'll just say, and I alluded to this already, but one of the fascinating things about the Sorensen-Kennedy relationship when it came to speech writing, and this is something I want to explore in the second volume, they were just this perfect team. Kennedy would indicate what he wanted the speech to include, and so he did that in this case. I think we need to talk about this, 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 and this. Sorensen then would produce a first draft. They would go back and forth. Kennedy would deliver the thing, and as I said, he would sometimes make changes just on the fly. But um, I think we see an example here, one of many, in which it just produced, I think, a really successful address by JFK. Have you been finding out any other interesting things in your in your looking at Irish-American relations during this time and, and Kennedy's influence? Well, I think it's... Um, you know, I don't know how, how consequential this is, but I find it interesting that Jackie, um, Jackie was more involved in helping to plan, well, maybe not planning, but in con- sort of conceiving potential trips. Jackie was more involved than I thought. And so in this particular case, though she was pregnant with the son who would be born in August and would only live two days, tragically, Patrick, even though she wasn't you know, she wasn't in a position to be involved. Uh, I think she, there's indications in the archives that she thought this was a really good thing for him to do. In other words, to include this um, uh, visit to Ireland. She had, when they visited previously, I guess it was in 55 on one of the previous visits, that had really been more at her instigation than than at Jack's instigation. So Jackie's role Jackie's role is 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 interesting here, and we don't often um, pay it sufficient attention. 
I wonder, do we have an idealised and too idealised view of JFK, especially in, in this country? Because we see him as this great hero for civil rights, but you know, some historians have suggested he dragged his feet yeah. on civil rights and Lyndon Johnson went much further than he ever would have. We see him as a great peacemaker, but he was putting military advisors into Vietnam. We kind of downplay the fact that he was a cold warrior. I wonder, are we blind yeah. to his to the reality of the presidency and we're just swayed by the oratory? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's a key question you're asking. I'm, dra- I'm grappling with that in this in this volume. Um, I think to a degree you're right. We, we do, not just we as Americans do it as well. Um, and in fact, in my native Sweden, it's extraordinary the degree to which even now Swedes of a certain age will get, you know, wistful when they talk about Jack Kennedy. They'll remember exactly where they were when they found out he had been killed. It's really kind of universal in a way. But as you say, uh, there is the issue of civil rights, uh, on which I think it's fair to say he did drag his feet. Uh, Vietnam, which is going to be an important part of my second volume, he does a lot to deepen U.S. involvement, despite the fact that he has these reservations, to say the least, about whether a military solution is even possible. Um, yeah, so I think we do that to a degree, but I think one reason why he matters is because of the deep divisions that I think we have currently in the United States, the partisan uh, divisions, because I think Kennedy, he employed the language of empathy. He emphasized always Americans' common goals and common fate as a people. He stressed the need for civility in the public realm because he said that it prevents dehumanization. We need to see our political adversaries as uh, our political opponents as adversaries rather than enemies. And I just think that's a really important message for for us, uh, perhaps for for people elsewhere, but certainly for Americans in this day and age. And that's something I also want to bring forth in this in this book. I think he himself was once sent the, the, the questionnaire to rank the presidents and he found it a, a very difficult job to do. I think he said he would have found it much easier to do before he actually was in the White House. But oh. h- how do you think he ranks compared to other American presidents? I mean, he's, I don't think he's in the top rank. Uh, and in that rank, presumably, we would have, we would have Lincoln we would have Washington as the first, and we would probably have FDR, given all that he accomplished and had to, to endure. But I guess I would be comfortable putting Kennedy in the second rank. He had, I would argue, Patrick, I think he had greatness within. Um, had he been able to serve a second term, and I think he would have uh, defeated Goldwater. He would have faced Goldwater. I think he would have defeated Goldwater, who's the Republican nominee, in 64. Um, I think that he could have accomplished um, um, great things. So let's call him solid second rank in my in my estimation. My estimation. Very good. And there's a book by one of my uh, my college classmates that you'll have to have a look at. Uh, he's a broadcaster here, Ryan Tuberty. He did a great book on JFK in Ireland, oh. and that'll help you with your uh, research it, as well. It, it, it sits. I can see it right here, Patrick, on my bookshelf. Uh, and so uh, I've already dipped into it, but I'll be sure to go back to it when I um, when I get to that sec- that part of volume two. Very good. And just a so final. Have it. Very good. Thanks. Yeah. And just a final question then, in terms of his view of. I suppose his identity, how he viewed himself. Did he view himself as American, as Irish-American? I know he also 
felt a connection with Britain as well and 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 their foreign policy and their place in the world. I wonder I wonder when you cut through it all, was he yeah. was he Irish? Was he Irish American? Was he American or can we can we identify him in in a particular way? Yeah. You know, I think how about this? I would say that he is more Irish than one might imagine. If you think about the fact that his parents were born in Massachusetts, his grandparents were born in Massachusetts, you might think that when Jack Kennedy comes along in 1917, he is as American as one can be. But I think he he grew up hearing the stories of the discrimination that 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 the Irish in Boston experienced. His own father uprooted the family and moved them to suburban New York City in a private rail car of all things, precisely because he thought in, in Boston we're getting too much discrimination. This is when Jack was a kid. When he's at Harvard, he's I, I suggest in the first volume he's a kind of insider outsider in that he's now fabulously wealthy. But there are certain final clubs, as they're called at Harvard, certain elite associations that he cannot penetrate because he's because of his surname, because of his Catholicism. Uh, I think he, throughout his life, until his assassination in Dallas, I think he uh, sees himself as Irish, as Irish-American. As you say, he also has a certain affinity for what we might call posh Englishmen, uh, and certainly with, with respect to uh, British foreign policy. It's a very interesting mix that we find in, 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 in JFK, no question. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you tonight. Mm. Uh, thanks so much for joining us, Professor Frederick Logaval. He's the author of the brilliant book, JFK, Coming of Age in the American Century. Uh, comes highly recommended. Pulitzer Prize winning historian, professor of history at Harvard. Thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. You take care. We'll be back with more on JFK's visit to Ireland in June 1963, right after this break. Talking History, history on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History as we remember JFK's visit to Ireland in June 1963. And I'm delighted to be joined by Nathan Mannion, the Head of Exhibitions and Programmes at EPIC, the Irish Emigration Museum in Dublin. Nathan, you're very welcome to the show. Thanks, Patrick. Very good evening to you. Nathan, I'm just wondering, why has JFK's visit to Ireland resonated so much? Because I remember back in 2010, we had uh, Ryan Tuberty on the show when his book JFK in Ireland came out. And, you know, he really explored the significance of it and the impact. But, you know, since then, there hasn't been a book on, on Nixon in Ireland or Reagan in Ireland or even Obama in Ireland. Now, I suppose you could do one on Clinton, but that'd probably be more on his involvement in the Good Friday Agreement. And I'm wondering, why is it that the JFK visit has been so important? Yeah, it's a very good question, Patrick. I think there's probably a number of factors there at play. I suppose to to bring it back to the beginning, JFK being the first sitting US president to visit Ireland will always you know, resonate a little bit as a historic event. Secondly, I suppose, given that he was the first kind of Irish-American Catholic to visit Ireland as well, it seems to be something that resonates a little bit more in um, the Republic of Ireland than any of the visits by his predecessors. He was far from the first to visit Ireland. Um, that would have been Andrew Jackson, or well, he would have been the first Irish-American president, I'm afraid. Um, there's 23 in total, and he wasn't even the first to visit Ireland. That would have been Ulysses S. Grant. Um, and then even the year prior to JFK's visit, his predecessor, Dwight D. Eisenhower, visited Wexford and Dublin, um, though he wasn't in office at the time. But these are events that aren't that widely remembered or commemorated in any significant way. So I feel that 
probably part of it was, I guess he was a youthful figure, the youngest American president ever elected, um, partly because of his Irish ancestry and his Irish Catholic ancestry, more so than links to kind of Ulster Scots. Um, and then probably, you know, his tragic assassination also as a, a kind of historic globally recognised event kind of places him almost as a, as a martyr in some people's minds. And the fact that his visit to Ireland came only five months before that, um, though they're, they're a combination of things that kind of come together to make that um uh, to make his visit to Ireland kind of stand out in people's minds. And as you say, the first visit by a sitting president, because I suppose with Grant, it was after he had left office. Same yeah. with Eisenhower and more recent years, Carter has visited. Biden visited, of course, before many times before he became president. But I suppose there is something about about being in office. And do you think television made a, a difference as well? Oh, most certainly. I mean, when you think about it, at the stage where he had visited RTE, as it was, had only been founded two years previously. Television in Northern Ireland had only been set up in 1959. So it was a, it was definitely timed well. And even at home within the United States, you know, television, I think, was reaching there were about 50 million at that stage. And something like over 41 million people would have watched his funeral um, only a few months later. So... You can really get a sense that it was a new medium. It was one that maybe favoured Hogan, favoured Kennedy as well. Um, when he had been debating with Nixon, they often say that Nixon won the radio debate, but um, Kennedy won it on the televised debate. And that really gives you a sense, I suppose, of his his charisma um, and his, his kind of usual vigour that he, that he portrayed. And it definitely played a factor, I guess, in highlighting both those here in Ireland and to the audiences back home um, the importance of that visit. And it was well recorded. There are a number of video recordings of his visit to Ireland as well. And there's a wonderful one on the I-5 by the Columbus Vaders, I think, which is colorized, um, which gives a real sense of the enthusiasm that he was received with as well. Why do you think sitting presidents visit Ireland? Is it because they want to connect with their, their and in so many cases, quite distant Irish heritage? You know, I don't think it was particularly significant for Reagan or for Trump or, you know, the Obama one was certainly very, very distant. Is it to connect with Irish American voters? It often seems to happen in the third year of the first term when there's a, another election coming up the following year. Is there a, a, a cynical motive behind it all? Yeah, I mean, look, every single visit, I suppose, is a unique case. And when you look at Kennedy, partly he had a very strong personal preference and he really did want to visit Ireland. But his visit to Ireland wasn't it wasn't a standalone event. You know, he was giving his famous speech at the Berlin Wall only a couple of days before he touched down in Dublin. So it was it was combined with something else. But he, unlike maybe many of his other pre- his predecessors since, actually played a very pivotal role in shaping the event. When he was elected, he made a point of saying to the then Irish ambassador to the US that he wanted to visit Ireland and he almost effectively choreographed a lot of his own visit. Um, it wasn't his first time in Ireland either. He had visited in 1951 um, to Waterford and to his family homestead, the Kennedy homestead in Wexford as well. So I suppose what what was different with him was that he wanted to do it while in office to make that, you know, to have that impactful visit. Being the first head of state to speak to the joint houses of the Oireachtas as well was a high honour, and I believe he's a little bit nervous before he gave that speech. Um, and for Ireland, I guess it was an important thing as well, because apart from Prince Rainier and Princess Grace a couple of years earlier, it was the first state visit by a foreign head of state to an independent Ireland. So they were learning quite a lot at the same time, and it was helping to kind of bring Ireland a little bit back into that international fold. Um, we're a relatively isolated state at that stage 
young, not not particularly economically prosperous, and uh, didn't have too many allies internationally. So it was it was a huge event for us. So the the media coverage had, I think, a twofold benefit. It was for those here and those abroad. Um, successors, and yeah, obviously their Irish impact on the U.S. presidency. As I said, there's 23 known figures who sat in the Oval Office to have Irish lineage. The vast majority of those um, hail from Ulster. Reagan would actually be one of the other exceptions with links to Ballyprene and Tipperary. But, um, and each one brings a little bit, I suppose, of a unique angle to their visit to Ireland. Reagan has the, the honour of being the first US president to visit Ireland to actually be recorded drinking a pint of Guinness, which is something that's kind of become common in the years since as well. So, there is an element of it being an electoral ploy. I know with Reagan, he, he had been keen to kind of downplay any of his links to Ireland um, when he was running for his first term in office. Um, but then, yeah, as, as the third kind of starts to come, is it a, is, is it a cynical ploy to gain an Irish-American vote? Um, potentially, but I don't think it's probably the only reason. And Obama, of course, has the connection as well. And I saw him, I, I remember 2011 when he spoke outside College Green, but he, he talked about his family fleeing during the famine. Didn't talk about how his, his great, great, great granduncle had been provost of Trinity or uh, that the, perhaps they weren't the worst off uh, during that period either. Yeah, and look, it's something that um, is often maybe maybe kind of highlighted or, or focused on to an extent by any sitting president when they visit the, the, the kind of overcoming of hardship, the the bleak kind of land that was left behind in many cases. Like if you think of the Kennedys, they're the archetypical Irish-American political dynasty, but, you know, fine, the first generation that did leave um, were leaving from hardship, but that's all eight of his great-grandparents. But then, you know, within the generation, their children basically became prominent politicians in Boston as well. So they overcame that hardship quite quite quickly um, once they had left Ireland as well. And it can be an extent that... Uh, Sometimes it, it, it's a benefit to to kind of find those common links to the to maybe the majority experience of those who might have left the island or those whose ancestors might have um, to kind of appeal a little bit more to their sensitivities. We often talk about Irish America and the Irish diaspora. How important was the visit for Irish America? Oh, I think very important. Um, again, like when we look at it today, the Irish diaspora numbers between about 70 and 80 million the largest group, almost half, are based in North America and mainly in the United States. So this this visit and the fact that it was recorded, there was a wealth of um, American journalists that accompanied President Kennedy during his visit to Ireland. They were, they were, there were previous to the visit, there was um, papers written up stating that they should be given, you know, priority access. They should be front and center, and they should be able to record, photograph um, any events, any any meet and greets with with members of the Irish public. Um, any seminal speeches and so on, and all of that was recorded so that it could appear back in the press in the United States. The recordings that were undertaken as well, you know, you can consider that they were probably very useful uh, leading up to an election year as well, or that's what they would have been envisaged. Um, And even earlier, we had the good fortune just last year during during lockdown to work on a collection um, that had been owned by a lady called Dorothy Tuberty or Dot Tuberty, who had passed away only a couple of years ago, and she had been a close family friend of the Kennedys and of John Fitzgerald Kennedy and his brother. Lots of lovely photos of them together. She would have been a Waterford Crystal ambassador to the United States, um, basically kind of a brand ambassador. But she befriended the Kennedy family, and after JFK had won the nomination, the Democratic nomination to run for president in 1960 in L.A., he 
made a recording which was sent to her um, to be played on Irish radio. Now, she never opted to actually play it. Um, it has since been digitised and it's available online. Um, the first half of it is, is very similar to some of the content of the speeches he gave when he was in Ireland. He's appealing to the Irish people and particularly those with family in the United States to to support him in the election. He talks about his visit to Ireland um, back in the early 50s. He talks about his family's ties and leaving the Ireland of the famine and so on. But the second half then is a personal note to, to Dorothy, which basically says, Hi, Dorothy, how are you? What do you think? If this is any good, please give it to the Irish radio. If not, do what you want with it. Um, we think we're facing into a really tough election. Thanks for the help you've given us before. Um, we're going to need you to come back here in the fall and support the campaign. Um, and so on. And he signs off as Jack rather than his more formal address, which is Senator John Fitzgerald Kennedy at that stage. So I think he was very keen and aware that um, any media, even before he became president, that he sent to Ireland could have an impact on how he's perceived in the United States and either be of benefit or a hindrance to him. So I think it's something he's always been aware of and definitely played up to. How good was the speech to to the Oireachtas? And its quotes are often played. You know, there's the references to to Irish historical figures and figures who who had a, a, a role to play in the creation of the United States. But do we sometimes again idealise that? Oh, I mean, I mean, any any iconic speech by a visiting head of state, and there there are certain elements that are generally incorporated into most of the other. Historic ties between the two countries, kind of praiseworthy individuals of significance, personal anecdotes as well that link into lived experience um, and, you know, kind of complementary um, compliments towards existing governments, wherever it might be. Um, so there, that's definitely a thing. But I suppose the significance of it is first, that again, as I mentioned, it's the first time uh, visiting head of state addressed the Joint Houses of the Oireachtas. So that's uh, it's a precedent. Um, the fact that a gift was presented during that speech as well, the banner of the fighting 69th um, from the, um, the Civil War in the United States. And then those links, I suppose, reinforcing them to, well, maybe now with the benefit of hindsight, we see these as maybe slightly disingenuous. But I actually think it was relatively genuine in the case of Kennedy. He seemed a little bit nervous before he gave the speech. The links that he was highlighting, again, were not just for um, those sitting in the audience in the Oireachtas. This was recorded. You can watch the recording of the speech. Um, so it was also something that could be used back in the United States. At the same time, um, the historic figures that he references, they definitely did resonate. So particularly uh, Commodore John Barry, I would say, because he, he laid a wreath at that statue, which uh, Eisenhower had done the year before. That had been manufactured in the US, delivered by an American naval ship and you know installed in Wexford. Um, obviously, Kennedy had been a member of the Navy during the Second World War himself, and he did keep Commodore John Barry's sword on display in the Oval Office during his term there as well. It's now in the JFK um, Presidential Library and Museum. So I guess this would have been something he saw every day. This is a figure that definitely did have some significance for him, and his inclusion in the speech, and the fact that he laid a wreath as well um, as the father of the, the US Navy, probably did have an importance to him, particularly with his own ancestry. So I would say... It was carefully crafted. The individual figures that were included um, were put in for a particular reason as well. And I think part of it as well, if you look toward the speech, he praises Irish efforts in peacekeeping um, in the Congo at that stage and and the death of Irish soldiers there. Um, But in a way, he's trying to kind of welcome Irish uh, Ireland a little bit back into the fold. 
Um, and later on, you know, at his funeral, you know, he also has that Irish Guard of Honour as well, um, which there was no precedent for before. And I don't think since that members of a foreign military have been um, involved in a Guard of Honour at a funeral of a, a foreign head of state like um, Kennedy. So he definitely did feel um, a personal connection. I think that's definitely something that we can say is definitely the case. And do you think the visit became even more iconic precisely because he was assassinated a few months later and he became forever frozen in time as this youthful president and uh, there was always that that debate about what might have happened? Yeah, I think that there's always that kind of the mantle of the martyr in a way in that um, because he died in office, he died so young, he had only so recently visited Ireland as well. You know, it did send shockwaves across the world um, and the fact that Again, he had been a historic figure in terms of being the first one to visit um, while in office as well. There was a lot of kind of investment in that event um, here. So definitely it did kind of freeze um, him in the in the Irish psyche. And, you know, you will have seen like the, the commemorative kind of China and so on that, that pop up every now and then of Kennedy that would often have been on dressers in Irish homes and so on um, in the years that followed that visit. So there is an element where... He would definitely have been, um, yeah. Had had he had he lived, had he you know served the second term, maybe left office, um, gone on to do whatever he might have afterwards, um, perhaps it wouldn't have been as impactful. But at the time of his visit as well, I think he had a record approval rating in the United States, which was unheralded. Um, so the benefit the benefit of the visit would probably only enhance that among potential voters back in the U.S. If he had lived, you know, perhaps those figures might have slid. Maybe something would have come up that um, during his second term that he might not have been able to handle as adeptly. Part of it as well, I think, you know, there's a certain public visage as well of Kennedy, you know, kind of youthful and vigorous, but he did suffer quite a lot of physical pain as well. And I think he was actually in quite a lot of personal pain, physical pain during his visit to Ireland, which isn't really picked up by any of the media coverage, but, you know, he did have Addison's disease, back trouble and a number of other issues. So um, the fact that he was able to put, you know, his kind of best foot forward and put a face on it and that it is so memorable in the Irish Shaky today is probably partly a testament to how well he could, you know, present himself in public. And that legacy, I think, has stood the test of time past his assassination as well. Okay, well, my thanks to Nathan Mannion, Head of Exhibitions and Programmes at EPIC, the Irish Emigration Museum in Dublin, for joining us tonight. Uh, Nathan, thanks a million. Thanks very much. Thanks, Patrick. We'll be back just after this break, where we'll be talking to a regular listener of Talking History who was there when JFK landed at Dublin Airport. So stay with us here on News Talk. Talking History, History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History as we remember JFK's visit to Ireland in June 1963. And here's a report from British Pathé on the visit. The wheels of the presidential airliner were running on Irish soil. The cheers of Berlin were still ringing in his ears, but how different it all was now. John F. Kennedy was in the land of his forebears, and there to bid him welcome was President de Valera himself no less a fighter for freedom than the chief executive of the United States. This youthful man, who has revivified the government of the great republic across the ocean, had a firm, determined step as he went to inspect the guard of honor of 187 men drawn from the 5th Infantry Battalion. Soldiers, these men, who have known active service, for the battalion served the cause of the United Nations in the Congo. 
Mr. Kennedy is the first American president ever to visit Ireland during his term of office. That alone would make this a memorable occasion. But there is more to it than that. For as many reflected, while President de Valera made his speech of welcome, this is the man whose great-grandfather somehow scraped together the four pounds for a sailing ship passage and emigrated to the United States. In the hungry years of the mid-19th century, when adversity drove hundreds of thousands to leave their beloved island, they used to call it seeking their fortune. The man now driving to Dublin has achieved fortune beyond wildest dreams. He was coming to the capital of error as head of the greatest nation in the world. Already thousands were converging upon O'Connell Street. For several days, the Kennedy visit had been the number one topic of conversation. At last, the president was in Dublin. Ireland and America, warm friends for a hundred years, share in this dynamic man a symbol of their common faith in liberty. The motorcade was cheered by fully a quarter million people. Wexford beckoned Mr. Kennedy on a sentimental pilgrimage. At nearby Dungan'stown is cherished the tiny homestead on which Patrick Kennedy turned his back 115 years ago. The hostess today was a second cousin of the president, Mrs. Mary Ryan, who farms there now. Many Kennedys are to be found in the district, several of them the president's cousins. Scores of people who could claim no relationship had come from near and far to be present. Even to see this tea party was something none of them will forget. Mr. Kennedy was spending four days in Ireland, but the program was crowded. So all too soon, the time came for him to bid Dungan'stown and its friendly people goodbye. And there to whisk him away was something few of them had seen before. Certainly not on the doorstep, a helicopter. And I'm delighted to be joined by Raymond Cass, a regular Talking History listener who was there when JFK arrived in Dublin back all those years ago. Ray, you're very welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So let's go back in time to June 1963. How old were you and how did you end up in Dublin Airport? Because am I right in thinking you were more interested in the airplanes than in fact in seeing President Kennedy? Absolutely. I was 14 years of age. Uh, I had just finished second year in O'Connell School, um, which, by the way, was the alma mater of the then Taoiseach Sean Lamas. Um, and as you say, I was more in, into the aircraft than I was into this guy called President Kennedy. Um, and in anticipation of his visit here, um, there was uh, a whole array of various, mainly military aircraft, um, flown into Dublin over the preceding two weeks. Uh, and I and my mates were quite fascinated by these. I mean, um, we saw... Uh, Air Force One, which was the uh, president's plane, a, um, a converted Boeing 707. And I particularly was fascinated by uh, a collection of helicopters that were brought in, uh, S-58s and S-61s. Those of your listeners who watch television now will see a helicopter called Marine One. Well, uh, that's a, a version of the S-61 so anyway, we landed we, 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 on the day that uh, the president was due, which I think was a Wednesday. Um, we, a couple of us met up out at the airport, but we couldn't get up to the terminal building because of security. So we were hanging around and um, the airport was a much smaller place then and it was surrounded by fields. 
So at some stage in the late evening, we were down in one of the fields. We were actually playing some kind of touch football with a rolled-up rain mac with an elastic band around it. And the president was due around 8 o'clock, I think. Uh, late in the evening, um, we could hear the sounds of the PA system from the terminal. So I looked at one of my mates and I, I gave him a, a, an eye message and uh, he responded, yeah, I, I will if you will. So we persuaded the other two and we trotted up to a roundabout, which was close to the entrance of the airport. Uh, there were quite a few people there, but it wasn't jammed. Uh, and we hung around a little bit longer, and then down from the uh, terminal came this cavalcade of cars. And there in front of me was this guy uh, standing up in an open-top car, tall, uh, impressive, youngish, uh, smart suit, uh, waving at us with a smile from this uh, open-topped car. Uh, And I must say I was bowled over. Um, and very different to the kinds of levels of security you would see today for a president. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I saw in uh, Washington, D.C. Uh, a few years ago, I, I happened to see on Pennsylvania Avenue uh, a cavalcade surrounding what I think they called the Beast, uh, which had Barack Obama in it. And uh, I can tell you that it was nothing like this open-topped appearance in uh, Dublin Airport in 1963. Yeah, so a very different time. So so how close were you to actually see? And was that the beginning of a lifelong fascination then with, with Kennedy and the Kennedys? Yes, uh, I was almost within, and it's no exaggeration to say I was almost within touching distance. Uh, and he had this, uh, I don't think the word charisma had been invented at that time. But uh, if there's a thing called charisma, he had it. Uh, he looked at you, he waved, and you were captured at that moment. Uh, And the long-term effect that had on me was to generate an interest in the Kennedys. uh, And as a result, I've been to all the famous sites, with the exception of Dallas, which I will not go to. Um, And uh, also a broader interest in American history and politics and uh, all of the 46 presidents. And what is is the the Kennedy Library and Museum like? Uh, uh, I've never been there what did it mean for you to go and, and, and see all of these great sites associated with them? Well, um, if, if they, as regards the Kennedy Library itself, the contents of it are absolutely fascinating. Uh, and they include uh, quite a, a bit of video material on the uh, presidential visit to Ireland in June 63. Uh, it's a, a fascinating place. Um, I was also at uh, Jack Kennedy's birthplace in Brookline, which is uh, in uh, just north of Boston. Um, there's another uh, museum in Berlin called the Kennedys, which is largely a photographic collection. Um, and uh, obviously, I've been to St. Matthew's Cathedral in Washington, D.C., where his funeral was held. And I have five or six times been to uh, Arlington Cemetery. Um, the first time was in 1978. Do, do you think Kennedy's age played a big part in this, given that you were 14, he was 46, Sean Lamass was almost 20 years older than that, and then President Damon de Valera was older still. Do you think that played a part in, in him appearing so new and different to you? Absolutely. Um, as you say, Sean Lamass was almost 64, Eamon de Valera was 80 years of age. 
uh, and they were all rather dull, dreary, funereal in appearance. And here was this guy, young, vibrant, enthusiastic, in a brighter suit, um, and, uh, you know, as I say, absolutely uh, charming. So, yes, that, that was a big deal. It registered with me that you don't have to be old and dreary to be a successful politician. You say you've never visited Dallas, and I can understand why not. Given that JFK was assassinated there five months after this visit, what impact did that have on you then, and how upsetting was that uh, when you heard that news? I was stunned. I was at home in uh, our house in Drumcondra, doing my homework in the kitchen, and my brother had been out at some uh, school-related event that evening, And he arrived in the door um, shouting, turn on the television, President Kennedy has been shot. Um, And I'll never forget that moment. I was stunned. And in later years, when other parts of the Kennedy story came out in terms of his affairs with other women, uh, criticisms of his presidency, did that in any way change uh, your impressions and your view of Kennedy? Or again, was your impression made when you saw him aged 14 as he left Dublin Airport? Um, I suppose uh, it certainly had an effect, and I've read an awful lot of, of, about Kennedy. Uh, the best of the biographies that I've read so far was one by Robert Dalek, An Unfinished Life. Um, but I, I'm a great believer in that line from Shakespeare, the, the evil that men do lives after them, the good is often turned with their bones. And that's my view. No, that's, I think, a very good way of, 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 of explaining it and, and talking about it. Did any other political figure in later years ever capture your imagination in the same way? Uh, what about even his brother, Bobby Kennedy, when he was running, trying to get the Democratic nomination in 1968 and then, of course, was also tragically assassinated or uh, any other figures elsewhere? Um, well, I, I'd hate to sound like a, a one-trick pony, so to speak, but uh, I, I, I thought Bobby was great, and I, I thought he might have made actually a better president than his brother. Um, he had matured a lot over the years from the, the cheeky young pup he was in Jack's time. Um, and I, I, I'd hate to spoil uh, my, my image, so to speak. I was a fan of Tony Blair, I must admit. And, in, and you can see real similarities between JFK and Tony Blair, I think, in the way they presented themselves, their, their ease with the media, uh, the image that they had. Uh, there, are, there are certain similarities. To a degree, I would, I would say so, yes. Um, I mean, obviously, uh, operating in, in, in quite different worlds. Um, again, I, I, I think Blair's reputation was destroyed by the Iraq thing. Uh, but I still think he, he I mean, I can I can remember every uh, British prime minister going back as far as Harold Macmillan. And I, I, I would say that Tony Blair was probably one of the most, if not the most impressive uh, of those prime ministers. Well, Ray, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you tonight and uh, thank you for sharing your memories of of JFK's visit in 1963 and what it meant for you. And I think given uh, your quoting of Shakespeare and everything, we're going to have to bring you back, I think, for some other shows. Oh, well, that's very kind of you. I I hope I've contributed something of of, of interest to people tonight. No, uh, As an oldie. No, not at all. But uh, Ray, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks again, Patrick. God bless. If you have your own memories of JFK's visit to Ireland or indeed want to contribute to any of our other shows or even just give your thoughts on them drop us an email talkinghistory at newstalk.com or send us a text 53106 and text cost 30 cent
And that brings us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to my producer, Marisa Sullivan, and Peter Malloy on sound. Next week, we'll be exploring Ireland's Middle Kingdom, finding out about the history of Rathgar and Churchtown, and hearing some great stories about Galway over the centuries. So join us next week on News Talk. We've been Talking History. Good night.